Okay, pray with me, would you please? <clears throat> God, you are so, so good. Commandeer our focus now. Teach us, lead us, guide us. Let our hearts be so yours, so ready for all that you have in store. Make us in a way so that our hearts are prepared, so that our ears could hear and our eyes could see. That we desire to put together that which is your word today and to deeply take it and embrace your word that we would find ourselves in that place of complete and absolute abandon to you. Where you would revolutionize us today. So have your way, God, we pray. Lord, I pray you would immerse me in your Holy Spirit that, that I would disappear and you would be seen and that you would come upon me in such a way that, well, God, that, that you would do through me what only you can do. That you would speak to each of us individually right where we need to hear you and corporately as a family. God, please now minister. Perform the therapy you desire. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today is that when any, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures, let the Bible be your final say, that until the day the Lord comes back or until I die, you should expect to hear that. In chapter 13, Jesus has received his disciples, he had sent out, they've come back now. He's in the house, the house will assume is Peter's mother-in-law's house, his there, by the way, we've seen in chapter 13, or chapter 12, setting up for that, that there is this full frontal assault by the religious leadership of the day. Uh, that's become much more prevalent. With that, Jesus is well, uh, seeks his, he sort of sets up headquarters. His family comes to intervene, if you will, for an intervention to rescue him from himself. In their opinion, he's working himself to death. And the needs are vast. So he leaves the house then and heads to the shore. As he heads to the shore, the crowd follows him. And he has this audience, if you will, that are all on the shoreline as Jesus then steps into a boat, assumedly, again, Peter, one of the, the partners, and then teaches from there four parables. He will then return back from that boat, head back into the house for three private parables. They all pertain and they start with the kingdom of heaven is like, or what shall I compare the kingdom of heaven like? The first four of them being, in essence, for the most part, agrarian. agrarian. They're, you know, a sower went to sow some seed, and as he sowed some seed, it falls in four soil types. And then, and then an enemy comes and sows tares among them. It's like a mustard seed that's so insignificant in its appearance and yet grows so large that the birds of the air themselves make their nests in the branches. And then this whole idea of this leaven that degrades and infiltrates, if you will, pollutes the whole lump. And then they really aren't very shining. You know, they're certainly not the kind of things you would put on a brochure to make people go, let's join the kingdom of heaven. And, and in all of them, there are political. And that's the point of it. From the purpose of people, uh, there will always be some margin of error on earth because people will be involved, and we're fallen people. And even in saved condition, we find ourselves in that battle between the old life that we had once lived and the new life Christ calls us to. Then he gets inside and shows us what the real depth of it all is. He tells us it's like treasure hidden in a field, and like a precious pearl that was so valuable, so priceless, so precious, that the one who wanted it would give up everything 
would forfeit everything else just for that thing. And you get the difference between the personal and the political. The reason I'm a Christian isn't because of the politic, and prayerfully neither are you. But because Jesus so loved you that he'd rather die than live without you. So he has gotten to this place where he then speaks about a dragnet to show that God really does know how to sort through it all when it's done. And now he starts to live it out. The end of chapter 13 and the majority, if you will, or all of chapter 14, really, in essence, bring to flesh. And I don't mean that in that negative sense of the flesh nature, but bring, if you will, flesh out the very first parable he tells us. Where he tells us that a, parable, that a sower went to sow some seed. The seed was not a variable. The sower was not a variable. The way he threw it was not a variable. But the soil types were. And if I were to title this message, might I say it would be the soils of the soul? Because what we find is that that's what we're going to see borne out here. In the first case, what he tells us is, though it, it fell on what we might call the pavement, or if you will, the sidewalk, it, it fell on the, the concrete, and as it did, there was really no willingness, the word suniemi, there was no willingness to take that beyond the surface. The danger here, and this is, I really believe, one of the reasons why God constructed Matthew the way he did, is that we could read those things and just assume, well, that's just the unbeliever. The unbeliever is going to be one who, you know, you tell them about Jesus and they instantly go, get away from me. You know, you're a nonsense, you're fairy tales, I'm not interested. But could this be us? Is there the potential for us even here in this room to hear God's word, for, it to, 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 for us to agree with it ideologically, and yet have no intention of taking this and embracing it into our lives and letting it really change us? And the behavior so that it's more in accord with God's word. Because what you realize is that's what he's going to show us here. So in the first case, what we find is that the killer of that, of the seed, if you will, and the essence of it all, was the unwillingness to apply. Sunni The unwillingness to understand. And as a result of that, the birds of the air came and then snatched away the seed because it had no real purpose other than to feed the birds. In the second case, he speaks about the shallow faith, the stony soul, if you will. Immediately we read that he receives the word with joy. There is a willingness to listen and even an agreement. However, there's no roots. And he tells us then that the tribulation, that means trouble, that comes and the persecution that comes like a scorching sun fries that faith till it produces nothing of fruit. The killer in the second case was the tribulation the persecution due to the word. And because there were no roots, it stumbles. We're going to find that. I'm not speaking, if I am speaking prophetically, I'm not telling you that's my intention, although I do believe it probably are, in the sense that we are facing a time soon where there'll be nothing kosher or cool or even allowable as a Christian, as a true Bible-believing, Jesus-accepting, Spirit-filled Christian, there will not, Jesus promised us we'll be hated by all nations. We should never expect there to be some little solace area somewhere where we could all get together, lock hands, and sing Kumbaya and everything's safe. He always promised a remnant. But Jesus made clear by the second parable that just because someone's in church does not mean that they're there for Jesus. In the second parable, what you find is it's a very shallow surface Christianity at best. And the way that it'll be proven is when persecution comes, when trouble comes because of the word. 
He speaks of a third soil type. The third soil type. There's already occupation in the soil. It doesn't fall on rock here. It falls in ground, but the ground is fertile, but it's already been planted. It's been sowed with weeds, thorns, brambles. You know, of all the things that grow in our back garden, nothing as voracious as those crazy bramble bushes. I don't know where they came from. I'm fairly convinced from the abyss, but that's another story. But it's, I mean, we have a, a Boy Scout unit sort of on one side of us, and, and, a, and it's like somewhere in all of it, it seems like it grows faster than bamboo. I feel like I blink and it's grown another meter. It's amazing how it is. And, of course, it can hide in the, in the grass and all that, but you can't go barefoot because you'll discover it, and you'll discover it quite quickly. And it, it, it produces something that looks like fruit, but I, I haven't, it certainly doesn't taste very good. I'm a boy. I've tried it, of course. And in all of that, you realize, he says in all of this, that it does sprout up. But the problem is it is so occupied. It is so polluted with all of these other things, which he relates then to the cares, the anxieties, the stresses of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And what you find is, is that the seed is strangled. The killer in that, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. And then the fourth, which hears, applies it embraces it, understands it, and therefore bears fruit. 60, 160 and 30-fold. Now, now, hear me on this. If we were to do it this way, follow me on this for a second, and we'll dive into our text now. That's all, of, uh, that's all for the sake of context. So let's just say, and for the purpose of this, let's say that you were that, second, that's that first soil. The first soil, remember, falls on the pavement and the, 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 the birds of the air, but there's no willingness to take it deep. There's no willingness to take it at all. And as a result of that, what you find is the, the, the enemy of that is, I'll, I'll take it, in, you know, and this is a classic European thing, right? We can nod and we'll go, yeah, okay, thank you very much. But inside we're just saying, how do I get out of this conversation? That's our first soil. And our second soil, what we find is there is an immediate reception to the joy, with joy, by the way, but there's, it's too shallow to, to, to endure hardship. Hardship breaks it. So remember that is our challenges. And our third case, and we'll put you here, it's that cares of the world and the, and the deceitfulness of riches. Those are the things we find happen. And then Jesus, well, God through Matthew, if you will, starts showing us what takes place after that. Look at it with me because it's beautifully constructed to, if you will, demonstrate these very things. Look at it. Matthew 13, verse 53. Now it came to pass. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there and he went and came to his own country. We'll assume that to be the Nazareth where he'd come from. And he taught in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now, he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. The first thing that takes place, the first event that transpires after Jesus teaching us these parables is one, have you noticed, of comp almost complete and ardent rejection of him. I find that to be quite fitting, sad, but fitting. Notice it says in verse 54, as we start tearing a few of the clues into this, that though he came to his own country, he came to their synagogue. Did you notice that? Though it was his country, it wasn't his synagogue. 
Synagogue is a Greek word. It means, if you will, in a simple sense, assembly house. A place for people to meet together. And of course, it was what, for if you'll pardon the very loose uh, application, it would be basically where they had church, but also town meetings and so forth as well. Jesus, we read, he came there and notice he didn't just come to the synagogue. He taught there. Now, this wouldn't be the first time he was already rejected once before when he stood up and quoted Isaiah when he spoke the Haftorah and spoke of the prophets in Isaiah 61. And then tells us that the very thing the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has ordained me to. And he speaks of the very things Jesus will then demonstrate in his ministry. And they're offended because they know very well that that speaks of the Messiah. Jesus started his ministry, and it's easy to miss that. He started his ministry with the proclamation he was the Messiah. Now Jesus has returned there, and as Jesus speaks, he teaches. Now, consider from our perspective, God is teaching in the church, and as he's teaching in the church, nowhere do we have recorded what he taught. What we do have is that what he taught seemed irrelevant to them because they were too offended at who he was or what they thought he was. So there was a word going forth. And imagine what it would be like later for those who actually would put their trust in Christ after this to say, oh my goodness, I missed the one opportunity to hear him teach in church. I wish, I wish we could replay that. And I think of how many times God had something so beautifully planned for me, but my mind and my heart were elsewhere, so that I couldn't even hear what God wanted to say when I was sitting in the audience of it. I pray that not be any of us today. So what happens? He teaches, and notice, nowhere are they discussing what he's teaching. As if they can't even hear him. It's like, an, wah, 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 wah. that's all they're hearing. Because all they could be, they're, they're distracted. And I know how that is, to come in and be distracted. And what they're asking is, notice in 54, the first question they ask is, where? Where in the world does a guy learn to teach like this? And where in the world does a guy get the power to, to demonstrate these kind of miracles? Interesting. Today, how would that play out? Where are your credentials? How did you learn to do those miracles? Where did you go to receive that power? Did you go and get the blessing from Toronto? Or did you get it from Pensacola? Or did you wind up going to South Africa and going to what they thought was the source? I mean, it's amazing how they... It's like, But it's notice the whole idea is you're so caught up in this crazy periphery that you don't even notice who it is that's demonstrating this. You'd think that you'd look and go, this guy's doing miracles. And what will happen is, we remember all the way back in the last chapter... They were the, the Pharisees were saying, well, he does this by the power of Beelzebub. By John, when he heals a man born blind, the people will say, how could, how could Satan do that? Interesting, they had limited Satan's power that he couldn't give someone eyeballs. But I wonder what that would be like for us. Can we not hear God's word because we're distracted by something of the person or of... And in this case, we're talking about Christ. That's his pure, that's his per, perfect purity. But what if somebody were to come to us and have something and there's a word from God, but we couldn't hear it because, to be honest, we just didn't like him or they were weird or they irritated us or they were just from a culture that was abrasive to us. Could we hear them? Well, notice here they don't. Then they go and they play with the family card. Have you noticed that in verse 55 and 56? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Interesting. Why don't they know his name? I mean, they know everyone else's. Mom's Mary. 
We see that here. And his brothers, and he seems to have four of those. And it appears to me that he has at least three sisters. Sisters, plural, so he has at least two. But the term all tells me that there has to be at least more than two. So that means that Jesus has at least here seven, you know, if you think about it, at least a six-pack or a seven of siblings. That puts the whole Virgin Mary thing in a little bit of trouble for me. It is important to note that in John 7, 5, when Jesus was going, by the way, to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. His brothers urged him to go and go public. And it tells us in 7.5, because even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, this is God in the flesh. And just because your brother lived perfect in front of you, no sins, doesn't mean you think he's God. But they didn't believe in him at all. Now, they will, at least two of them. The book of James... And the book of Jude will be written by these two of these guys, by appropriately James and Judas. But not at this point. It will take his resurrection to change things. But maybe that's where it could happen. You've seen the family, and the family, well, they're strangely ordinary. It wasn't the high priest's kid, it wasn't a Levite. It was just a carpenter. Isn't this just the son of the guy who does the MOTs down the street? Isn't this just the son of the ticket taker? And we can do the same. We look and say, well, I know God might have something to say, perhaps, but his family is so messed up. Look at it. And it's amazing how many people pull that card on you, isn't it? If you're inviting them, if you're sharing Jesus with them. The sad part, though, let's be honest, is the people who are most vocal about not wanting to go to church are people who used to go themselves, or at least say they did. They're people who claim to be Christian. There's this massive movement away from church. And they'll say, well, I saw too many hypocrites or I saw this problem. And I, I, you know, they had something that they thought gives them a reason to disobey God because they think their circumstances are strong enough a case against God's word. Think that through. How sad is that? But you know, when you're really, really sick, you go to the hospital. But it's a pretty good possibility the majority of the people in the hospital are sick. Because that's where sick people go to get well. And say, well, I went to the hospital once, but there were too many sick people. See, for us to say, well, I couldn't go and congregate with a group of people because they're too messed up makes us appear as if we think we're not. There's our problem. And it tells us in verse 57 they were offended. Offended, scandalizo. I mean, we get it. It's like scandal. The term means they were tripped up. And Jesus responds with, you know, the only place a priest or a prophet really doesn't get any honor is in his own family, his own house, his own household, his own country. And we really didn't do many mighty works there. The other thing is perhaps, and this is the one I've been really seeking to pray through, is not just the family, but the familiar they're like, well, I think I know how God works. And I would expect it to be exactly like this. 
And then God does something so beautiful and so brilliant, I just don't see it because I'm busy looking in the wrong place. Now, I'll never say that, obviously, God will never step outside of his word, but that doesn't mean God couldn't do something in a way that's completely out of the form and tradition I've created for myself and my lifestyle. Again, he'll never negate his word, but he's certainly not limited to my cookie-cutter template of how God must do something. And they're, they're like, we already know this. And Jesus is like, you know why a prophet's not respected in his own community? Because he's just too familiar. He doesn't know who he is. And I ask, does my own unlimiting kind of I already know mindset keep me from actually what God wants to do around me? And in the end of it all, Jesus doesn't do mighty works there. And I think, and the birds of the air come, and it's devoured. Is that not the first soil type? Remember, the greatest enemy or the killer of the first soil type, if you will, was the unwillingness to apply it, to take it in. I would lands we could even agree perhaps with the teaching, but there's something that keeps us from drawing it in and going, you know, that really needs to do something inside of me to change me. That needs to do something. And I look and I think, oh, look at these poor people. They're so caught up in all of this that they can't, they don't realize God just taught in their church. God just taught and they couldn't hear it. And the wayside soul finds themselves at the wayside. Chapter 14, verse 1. And at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist who's risen from the dead. And therefore, these powers at work in him. Does that sound kind of weird to you? Because it sure does to me. But Herod had laid hold of John. Now we, of course, have the backstory, And bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. <coughs> but when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias, name is Salome, danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, <coughs> excuse me, having been prompted by her mother, said, give me the head of John the Baptist, or give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. The king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And then went and told Jesus. Once upon a time, there was a guy named Herod the Great. He wasn't great because of the way he looked. He wasn't great because he was so nice. Herod the Great, by the way, for which the Herodian dynasty would, would be begat, was the son of Antipater of Idumea. Idumea is the area just south of Judah. It is Israeli territory, and he was raised a Jew. Herod the Great was raised a Jew. He was raised going to temple. He was raised going to synagogue. He was raised celebrating the three feasts every year. Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot. This was a guy that knew Judaism. Idumea, because his father was not just of it, but he was in it. Idumeans are the Edomites. Edom, if you remember, was the twin brother of Jacob. That makes him, if you will, 
than the grandson of Abraham. He has got Jewish blood running through him. Herod had a bunch of kids from a bunch of different wives. Herod had gotten his way up through intrigue, and because of that, he always lived in the mindset in which he operated, which means he lived paranoid because the same way he seized opportunity, he thought everyone else would. Of the wives that he had and the boys that were born, anybody that seemed to be up and coming, brilliant, and seemed able to take over was then executed, strangled one of his own sons and his favorite wife, mind you. It had been said and coined the phrase, it was safer to be a pig in Herod's court than one of his sons. So when Herod dies in 4 BC, there was nobody capable of taking all of Herod's jurisdiction. So what you were left with, I mean, I don't know, uh, there's a part of me that wonders, would it have been better to be killed and say, yeah, I'm smart, I made the cut, and then you die? Or would it be like, oh, I didn't make it, and you lived, but, you know, you were, whatever, you get it. So what happened is they had to divide his territory into four parts, the Latin words tetras, and that's where we get the word tetrarch from. That means that they were, if you will, a ruler of one-fourth of the area. Of those quartered areas, the farthest north, the area, where we would say Caesarea Philippi, was given then to his son Philip. Philip, by the way, will rule then until his death from 4 B.C. to 34 A.D., his mother was Miramna, the daughter of Simon the high priest. Oh, he knew what was up. And he ruled Iturea, Trachonitis, Panes. It really, in essence, the area that would be the northern end of uh, the Decapolis. We would know it today as the area that borders Syria and Lebanon. Golan Heights and so forth. Well, what had happened is, is he actually saw one of his brother's daughters, his brother Aristobulus, if you will, brother from a different mother, the same dad. Aristobulus had actually been sent to Rome to basically hobnob to become, in essence, one of Herod's predecessors. And he was a smooth talker, but he wasn't very bright. Well, with all of that said, his sister, on the other hand, was this girl Herodias. So in essence, Philip married his niece, if you think about it. And what had happened is his brother just south of him, who ruled the area of Galilee, again, another tetrarch ruling a quarter, was brought up to and to be entertained by his brother and his wife. Philip, through that wife, Herodias, had a daughter named Salome. When he was up there, he saw his brother Philip's wife and he wanted her. Tradition has it. At the time, he was already married. He was married, by the way, to an Arabian princess, a princess from the area of Petra today. So he goes and finds an enchanter, hires the enchanter to seduce his brother's wife away. While he's there, apparently it seems to have worked in one way or another. They fake it as an abduction, and he takes the girl and her daughter away from his brother, and bringing them down south, just to the area of Galilee. We know this guy. Of course, this is the one Jesus will have to stand before, and who has the dubious honor of the one for whom Jesus had nothing to say. Jesus will never actually say a word to, her, to Herod. He will call him, though, that fox. And here we recognize that's not a positive term. But he has to get rid of his, his first wife, because I remind you, if he is then a son of Herod, 
he's also of Jewish blood. And he couldn't just start marrying people willy-nilly, so he has to get rid of the old gal, and he does. He divorces her, sends her off with no explanation. And as a result of that, the king of Petra, her dad, then comes and makes war and actually starts taking parts of Galilee uh, from Antipas because he had so insulted his daughter. But now he gets this girl. I remind you, then, she is also then part of the Herodian clan. Well, that would seem all fine and dandy until this guy shows up. John the Baptist is aware of this situation. We don't read how. And according to verse 4, John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have to her. And it tells us that's in the imperfect tense. Imperfect means he didn't just say it once. This guy said it over and over. It's as if everywhere you went, John was telling you, you can't do this, man. You took your wife, your, your brother's wife. You got rid of your first wife to do this. And you've probably heard it said, hell hath no wrath, like a woman scorned and she's insulted. As a result of that, he listens to her, follows her, and of course has him arrested. Puts him in prison, and originally it tells us that he wanted to kill him, but he was afraid to because everyone said he was a prophet. But in Mark 6.20, it tells us then, Herod feared John, it's the comparable text to this, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And it says, listen, listen to this. And when he heard it, he heard him, because he did many things, he heard him gladly. Does that sound familiar with our parable? In the situation, in our second situation, what you have is, here it has the guy arrested to keep his wife happy, if you will. And as he has him arrested, he can't kill him because he's afraid the people are going to go nuts. And so he just kind of has him, puts him in the prison, but then he starts going down there to talk to him. And as John starts to talk to him, all of a sudden you start to realize, he's like, wow, I'm really kind of enjoying what this guy's talking about. And so as a result of that, he's starting to hear this gladly. John the Baptist is speaking a word to him, and he's receiving it gladly. But it's birthday time. And at birthday time, the wife obviously has a mindset, and her mindset is, we need to take care of this guy. So Herod gets a little bit pickled. As he gets a bit pickled... Mom sends the daughter. I remind you, that's your daughter-in-law, if you will. Or however you want to put that. <coughs> Stepdaughter, whatever. Whatever it is, clearly indicates it's gross in any case. And she dances. Now, roughly, according to the term that's used here, she's probably a teenager. Now, for a princess to come out, viewed as your daughter, mind you, and do a dance would be a really weird thing in the first place. But for her to do a dance for dad like that? That's way weird, even for Roman culture. Pleases him, and we don't need to develop that. And like any guy at one of those weird moments where he's just pickled by all kinds of things, he's intoxicated by the girl and the alcohol, he looks and he tells her, I'll give you everything, and anything you want up to half my kingdom. Now, in the Western world, all he would have to do was marry and divorce her. She would have taken half his kingdom. Anyways, but uh, in this situation, so she had already, she was ready for it. And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. Now, think about what just happened. Herod is there with a lot of people. Tribulation and persecution. Remember that? Came because of the word, was the second case with no root. Though Herod heard him gladly, he had no root. And as a result of that, When trouble came because of the word, he caved. He caved to his wife, and then he caved to his crew. 
in the end of it all, it would have John killed. You know, the easiest way to not hear the word is to keep shutting yourself out from it. And in the second case now, just like the parable, when the sun came out, anything that the word would have done to him was scorched. Because it couldn't last persecution. Let me ask you, could you? Could I? I remind you, Herod was Jewish. To whatever degree, he was still Jewish. And as he was, this he knew was wrong. And I wonder how many times in my life God says something, and he says it very clear. But I back off. I don't want to cause trouble. I know that if I really just say what needs to be said or do what needs to be done, it's going to really backlash. But we cannot compromise to stand for truth. God's truth and the purity that he demands of us. Because what we do otherwise is we intoxicate ourselves with pollutants, with pollution that should be a space filled with God. But verse 12, what we find then is the disciples came to take him away. And I wonder, now that, doesn't that sound a little strange to you? He just had the guy executed. Do you think you grant the body to someone? It sounds to me like Herod, even in this, would still grant the favor to the disciples. Now, <clears throat> in the second century A.D., there is a commentator, a historian named Origen. Origen, by the way, would actually say that John the Baptist and Jesus looked very, actually rather much alike. Now, I, we can't hold that up to Scripture and say it's of the same value, but we can say that's an interesting thought, that somebody within a hundred years would say that. By the 17th century, there is a commentator named John Trapp. You may not be familiar with him because I'm not big on commentators for the most part. And he, he happened to be, in essence, the grandfather of, of people like C.S. Lewis and Spurgeon. They all really drank from his well a great deal. But I love what he kind of said about it. And I don't know whether this is true or not, but it, what John Trapp did say, and I don't know where he would have heard this from, is that Herod, this Herod Antipas, imagined that he saw and heard the holy head, that would be John the Baptist, shouting and crying out against him, staring at him also in the face at every turn. And I think, man, that's even cooler than Macbeth. You know, this guy is so plagued now by having killed John the Baptist that everywhere he turns, he sees his face going, you know, that kind of thing. Now, one thing we can rely on, a thousand years before Jesus came in Proverbs, we read this in Proverbs 28.1, that the wicked flee though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. When you have a dirty conscience, you will spend your whole life fleeing. But you know when you've done nothing wrong, that doesn't mean people won't accuse you. That doesn't mean people won't make stuff up. That doesn't mean people won't cause trouble. But you can still sleep at night. And I would rather be accused than be innocent and sleep at night than be guilty and get away with it. Because it also tells us in Proverbs that he who seeks to cover their sin will never prosper. But one who confesses it and forsakes it will find mercy. Hey, there is mercy for the confessor. But there isn't even rest for the one who just seeks to try to say it's not sin. Or try to cover it up completely. So we have the pavement 
And just like Nazareth, they wouldn't receive anything Jesus had to say, nor do we have it here to embrace. We have the stony soil. The soil of the soul that actually seeks to grab a hold of it. As long as it's shallow, as long as it doesn't really penetrate, it could tickle our brains, maybe even make us feel something for a moment. But when it really comes time to see whether it's really embedded into us, when challenge comes against it, are we willing to stand up or not? And that's what we see here is that John the Baptist was a casualty. I'm sorry, John the Baptist was a casualty of Herod's being a casualty to that kind of uh, soil. And then we have our third situation here, and this is as far as we get today. By the way, when the guilty soul happens, and you're plagued by what you've done wrong, and you're not willing to confess it and really get right with it, not really looking, and you know this, there's a huge difference between relenting and repenting. To relent means I stop it, and that's it. But to repent means that I'm not only going to stop, but I'm going to turn away from it and get as far from it as I can. Those are very, very different things. And now we have this heavy situation with Jesus as we look at the thorny soil. When I look at the stony soil, I can see the challenge against God's word. When I look at the wayside soil or the wayside soul, I can see how even in my own head there are times I can agree with things ideologically but really have no intention for it to really penetrate. But I think, what about me? What cares of the world or desires? I can get how The desires or the deceitfulness of wealth. Oh, that's clearly and obviously bad. And we can sit at church and go, yeah, you're right. I mean, the desire to just run out there and just try to amass and amass and amass for some form of benefit of our own. We recognize that that's bad. But we, we don't often put it at the level of the cares. And to be honest, as Christians, if we're really honest, this is as acceptable as alcohol is a drug among us. We say, well, that's an illegal drug, so, you know, but <clears throat> this is a legal one. But then the only reason I say that is there are certain things that are socially acceptable and certain things that aren't. Among Christianity, we could say, hey, you know, hey, just really being engulfed with avarice and greed. Yeah, we recognize that's bad. But to be overwhelmed with the cares of this world, it does the same thing. It strangles. Now, please hear me. John the Baptist's body, not his head, but his body, has been retrieved by the disciples. Assumedly, John's disciples. They bury it, but then they go and tell Jesus. Now, J.B., and by that I mean John the Baptist, was the edge of the spear for all parts and points of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist emerged, and then Jesus emerged. John the Baptist was put in prison. Jesus began, if you will, then his public ministry beyond baptizing. John the Baptist dies. Jesus now turns his mind and his heart towards death. The death he's going to give for you and me. But which one of us wants to tell Jesus that John the Baptist has been murdered? And what would that be for me? Well, in context, it's two things. It's the death of a loved one. Someone that you loved, that you respected, dying. And dying unfairly. Now, for all intent and purposes, John did nothing to deserve that. He stood for the truth. He was just one, hear me, 
that so let the word insat- I should say so let the word saturate him <clears throat> that he wasn't just willing to just let it change him, but he wanted it to change everyone else around him too. And can I just say, when the word infects you, you become contagious. There's the danger and the blessing. But it is also the reality now. The penny drops. It's the reality of the coming trial. That the cross now is evident. It's always been, if you will, on the agenda, on the the rota. It's just not had a date. You kind of know what's going to happen. The same way we might say that death, one day we will stand before God. And unless he comes before that, we we have a date with the grave. But chances are, nobody in here, as I look around, chances are none of you really think, well, it'll probably be today. But the moment that someone sits down and, and the doctor says, you have stage four liver cancer. You've got about a month at best to get your house in order. Things change. Because death is now more than a concept. Death is a personal reality. And John the Baptist's murder is reality for Jesus now. The choice he's going to make to die on the cross for you and me is not just one step closer. turns his feet to that direction now as he starts to head. What do you do when that happens to you? Let's face it. Don't we look for excuses to fail? Don't we look for purposes to think somehow? What we're really saying is, if I could find something to soothe the conscience God gave me through His Holy Spirit, and I feel like it's a legitimate enough reason, I could sin. Because man's as evil as you let him be. So, it's been a rough day. Well, how rough? Well, let me make it bigger in my head so that when I have to tell my conscience, it sounds like a legitimate case. Let's be honest. Now, for some, that's getting wasted. And I've sat at the deathbed of guys because they use that as their excuse. To be honest, relatively recently. On the other side of it, for us as Christians, maybe we'd like to think that we're beyond that point, but maybe not. It's a little trip to pornography. It's a little extra violence. Or maybe it's just being a jerk. You know, where you just feel like I have a right to treat you like filth because at the moment I just feel filthy. It's been a rough day. Because it's a rough day, I should have a right to make it rough on you. Does that make any sense when we really flesh it out and put it in front of us? So what did Jesus do to not do that? See, because what we're going to deal with in this last portion here is we're going to deal with Jesus being completely and absolutely selfless, driven by compassion and serving a vast sea of people at the very worst moment so far in his life. I'd like to think up to this point, this is Jesus' lowest point. Think about it. What is more challenging in Jesus' life up to this point than this You lose a job, something goes weird, 
Can I say it this way? Life promises you will experience from it blunt force trauma. There are going to be moments you're just going to get hit. You won't even see it coming. And you get knocked off your feet. And no matter how many times you blink and wipe your eyes, you couldn't have gone, yeah, I should have seen that coming, because sometimes you just don't. And it hurts. People you trusted become so different. Things you expect don't work that way. And somewhere down the line, you kind of feel like the water has risen in a way. You know that moment when you're kind of heading out off the beach and, and you've left now the ground underneath your feet so everything gets a little bit more uneasy because you just kind of know. But if the water pulls you out, it's even worse because you don't feel like you could just kind of take a quick step back to the shore and get your footing. You're now at a place where you're going to actually have to tread. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. What, did Je- what does Jesus do? Please hear me because this, is, this has got to get to the heart of it right now. Because in, in the case where, hey, people don't want anything, hey, it's just going to bounce off of me anyways, well, at least you're not really totally invested. The person who springs up and then kind of fizzes really quick, well, in a lot of those cases, to be honest, you, you, you kind of get a chance and you get hopeful, but you don't have the seasons that you've gone through to really experience the pain of somebody you've walked with seasons with. But then you get to this one and you watch somebody strangled slowly, and they're strangled slowly by somebody that, by the way, you've walked with now long enough, you can't grieve someone. That you don't love, by the way. You can irritate, you can, or that doesn't love you. You you can irritate, you can frustrate, but the only people you can grieve are people who love you. And and this grieves me as I watch this happen to people. So Jesus actually shows me how not to. Jesus, at the worst moment, getting the worst information he could get at this moment. Verse thirteen. It says, and when he heard this. He departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Now, did you wonder, did Jesus take guys with him on the boat and then say, guys, wait here? To be honest, what it sounds like in the, the language, it kind of sounds like somewhere in it. Remember, remember, right before this, I mean, Jesus was, you know, he's been like working. He's been confronted by the religious leaders. All of this is kind of happening. And in, in all of this, he's been rejected now. I mean, that's what he's kind of had to deal with. He's been rejected in Nazareth. Nazareth. He's kind of heading back up. And somewhere he's kind of made his way well, perhaps somewhere near Capernaum. And in all that, someone goes, hey, Jesus, I'm really, really sorry to tell you this. But John's dead. Could you see Jesus just looking at his disciples and saying, guys, please excuse me. Peter, can I borrow your boat? The same boat that he taught in when he taught this first parable. And he got in the boat and he just disappears. Imagine what it would be like for us, scratching our heads going, well, where, where'd he go? But please hear me. What he did was he three kind of basic things. That is, he got free, he got close, and he, got, he went alone. He got free because, because what he wanted is he, you could just see him wanting to get away from everything else for the moment to make sure that he did what he does when he's, when he's alone. And what does Jesus do when he's alone? He prays. That's what we read. 
Mark had already taught us that in Mark 1.35. In the morning, having risen a long time before daylight, he went out, departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. We'll see that in Matthew 14.23, Mark 6.46, and Luke 6.12. But we'll also see it, by the way, by the time next week when we get to the, or the week after, when we get to the, the text that follows this, that Jesus, again, will get alone and pray. And so get this, Jesus is like, okay, listen, guys, I, and, and can I just say it this way, in love for you, stop staring at the problem. Stop staring at it. It's like something happens and all you want to do is you get consumed on it and you think about it and it makes it worse. It becomes a black hole and then it becomes the only thing you can think about. Man, I just, I, I'm missing this thing and I need this thing and this thing let me down or this thing. And it becomes everything about your life and all of a sudden your universe becomes this. Because all I can see is it's got to be this, it's got to be this, and I'm hurt so bad in this. And Jesus goes, I'm going to get free from this for a moment because I need to look somewhere else. Stop staring and start stepping away from the tumult and the vastness of the need. And then get alone with God first. And you need to go alone before you get advice from people who mean really well. You need to hear God speak to you. Hey, when crazy things happen, I mean, when our kids were young, one of the things, well, they still are, but the one thing I seem to recognize is that when, when something would happen where they would get hurt, Tay was one of these class examples because she, she'd have a few of these, where something would happen, the first thing I could do if anywhere able is I'd grab her and I'd run. Because I wanted to get her away from everything else for the moment so that I could just be me and her so I could actually get to the point, it's like, well, what are you doing? I mean, it's, and sometimes it's simple things. She's, you know, we had this kind of cooler, you know, where you put like drinks in it. We used to play softball and it had wheels on it. So you would grab it by a handle, but it had these two handles. One was larger and one was smaller. And, and Tay would pop on this thing so she could get a ride. But she had grabbed the, mid, the inside one. And when the person went to pick up the larger one, it was like scissors that cut on her fingers. She screamed like a smashed cat. And the guy who did it, by the way, a sweetheart. And so, I mean, I just grabbed her and we ran. And it's like, because this text had so impacted me before, and it still does, where I get this idea. It's like, I just wanted her to be alone with her father for a moment and be just like, honey, before anything else, before anyone else, because you know how awkward it is and you're crying and people are looking at you. And, you know, I just want to get alone. It's like, honey, just you and me now. Catch your breath and then tell me what's really going on because I need to know if you're okay. We're here in this situation as unokay as Jesus could be until the garden, this is it right here. And he gets alone with the Father. Before he could hear his disciples going, don't worry, John the Baptist is in a good place. And he's, all those things that are true, but they don't mean as much. Because listen, until you hear God's voice, you're going to be spinning out of control because your emotions cannot steer. They're a great ignition, but they are a terrible steering wheel. And all of a sudden, you're in the tornado, and you're just, you don't even have anything to hold on to, and you're just going, woof, woof. And you can't even, and nothing looks right because you can't slow down long enough to see anything clearly at this moment. Until you get alone and hear the Lord, you will never be ready for what else is coming because what we wouldn't see until we start reading beyond this is that this whole thing is a setup for Jesus to serve so many people. And I wonder how many of these situations we just keep staring at the thing what we think we need and the changes that need to be made and so forth, that we don't actually hear God tell us what he really wants to do. And then we get angry at people because they don't think they don't get it. Maybe what they're actually doing is trying to seek the Lord too, and they're not hearing the craziness we're throwing at them. 
And yet in the midst of all of this, while Jesus is going to get alone, do you think he cried? Do you think he frumped? Do you think he said, you know, I I don't want to really be around Peter right now because I don't want him to push my buttons? Now, please hear me. Getting alone and staring at a movie screen is not the same thing. Getting alone and listening to music is not the same thing. But some of us, that's actually our natural inclination. I'm depressed. Let me hear more depressed music. Yeah, that's going to help. That's kind of like I hurt my hand. I'm going to get alone and hit it with a hammer a few more times. But let's be honest, some of us, that's what we do. And then we wonder why we're even worse. Versus God, I, I really need to hear from you right now. And you know what happens? Please hear me in this. And we're almost done. But please, I, I can't rush through this because it's got to hit our hearts here. Is, is, is that what we find is often God isn't going to meet us right there right away. Because if he met us there right away, at least I should say this, he isn't going to speak to us there right away often. Because if he did, we still couldn't hear it. When Paul was beat up and he was thrown in prison, now we're in the, the latter portion of Acts 20, 20, 25, 24, 25, 26. He had just made his way back to Jerusalem. They tried to tear him apart. He has to be rescued by the Romans. He gets put in the Antonio Fortress. He had an opportunity on his way up to preach to them. The one thing he's always been wanting to do, and he finally gets a chance to do it, And then they freak out the moment he says that God would want us, Gentiles. And then Paul gets thrown into this thing. And we read, the next night Jesus appeared to him. Now, if you're anything like me, I would think the next night, five minutes into being thrown into jail would have been great. And that would have been long. But not that day or that night and not the next day, but the following night. When Jesus hears that Lazarus was ill to the point of death, Because he loved Mary and Martha, he waited until Lazarus was dead four days. Is that your timetable? Because it's not mine. So why did Jesus wait to tell Paul? Maybe it was because Paul was not quiet enough to hear it. Because the cares and the worries of the world at that point had so choked his ears that it's all he could hear. And every time you move, You've been beat. Every time you move, you feel it and you're reminded. Every time you breathe, you feel it and are reminded. You could see Jesus going, you know, I'm going to wait on Paul until he's actually at the point where I can speak to him and he'll listen to what I have to say the way I want to say it. And for some of us, the Lord may be saying something opposite of what we're thinking And we wonder why we can't hear him. When Jesus is like, I know how that feels. The same will happen with me. And I look at this text and I think, here's Jesus. I don't think Jesus went in for a drive through prayer. I see Jesus getting alone. And to be honest, notice it says, and it's important to recognize, verse 13, it says at the end of it, when the multitudes heard it, they heard that Jesus had left. Hey, where's Jesus? And his disciples were like, oh, he left. Where do you go? I don't know. It doesn't like you had a cell phone you could call. 
They followed him on foot from the cities. Well, he's fairly, I mean, imagine we're all, you know, if the multitude's all there, chances are the parking lot's fairly full, but the boat that's going out on the river, or uh, I'm sorry, on the sea, that's, well, that's probably Jesus, and they just kind of follow him. And here's Jesus, but notice it says in verse 14, and when Jesus went out, do you see that? Went out. Went out. Exerkomai. Ex, like exterior, ek is out of. Erkomai, which means to, to, to issue or depart from. <coughs> Excuse me. When Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. That means Jesus was someplace, to be honest, the multitude couldn't follow him, couldn't find him. He was someplace that was in, wherever in was, whether it was up on another mountain somewhere, whether someplace he got, and notice it says a deserted place. He got to a place where you couldn't get cell phone reception, perhaps, or at least he wasn't going to bring it with him. <coughs> Excuse me. A place where you couldn't bump into a stranger or someone you knew. He's going to get in a place where nothing was going to distract him and he wasn't going to leave. He wasn't going to leave until he heard from the Father. And I really love that about Jesus. And I want that in my life where my prayer life isn't, well, God, you've got 10 minutes, maybe eight because I've got to catch a bus. Then you're going to have to talk while the bus is moving. You know, versus, you know, I'm not, I'm not even leaving this spot. I don't want anyone to find me. And the multitudes can't find him. Jesus comes out to the multitude. Is if somehow whatever he got in that conversation that the Bible doesn't care to tell us at this moment, but somewhere in all of that, what Jesus got in that time prepared him now for the multitude that's awaiting him. And imagine he's wherever he is, whether he hears the multitude or not, it appears as if he discovers it, but he comes out and there's the multitude. And maybe this is you, where you know, like right now, things are so precedent. It's the situations and all the craziness and, and all the demands and so forth that you've got. Like there's a sea of needs and it's vast. And you're like, oh my goodness, and I feel like I'm drowning in it. Well, understand, somewhere in it, you've got to get away to where it's just you and the Lord. And you're like, I'm, not, I'm just going to wait until I hear you. And when I hear you, we're going to be good. But you don't just go there and park and build three tabernacles. Because then he went out and he saw a great multitude and notice it says he was moved with compassion for him and healed their sick. Somewhere in all this, because Jesus heard from the Father, because he was able to energize where he needed to, he actually, at the worst time in his life so far, was still able to serve the Mass. <coughs> Wouldn't it have been legitimate for him to go, hey, you know, this has been a really rough time, this has been a really rough day. Could you guys come back tomorrow even? Give me a day or whatever. But he never had to do that. He got away so that when he was done, he could come out and he was ready for whatever was in front of him. And in this case, it was a sea of need for which he healed. Verse 15, when the evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place. Of course it is. Jesus picked it that way for that purpose. The hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages to buy themselves food. Please hear me. Jesus in verse 14 didn't just have compassion, didn't just see with it, but he had a, a compassion that moved him. Do I have that? And do I have a compassion that moves me? Not just do I have a compassion that makes me feel something that I could agree intellectually or even emotionally that something's wrong or bad or needy. 
But have I walled up my heart so much because of the situations that we've encountered that I just don't want to feel anything anymore? I just want to be numb. Like a leper. Maybe in the second soil what we saw was was the persecution and trouble that comes from the Word that really took the, the whole thing down. Maybe in the third case, maybe it's the need. Or I really need to reach in and have compassion. Well, what's clear, and please hear me, is if you're looking anywhere for that compassion, if you're looking anywhere but Jesus, you're looking in the wrong place. If you're looking anywhere for comfort that's going to last, that's not Jesus. You're looking in the wrong place. And if you build in your head, if only this situation were like this, and I were in the middle of this situation now, and you romanticize it and you build it as if it becomes an idol, if it's not Jesus, is it going to work? And he fleshes it out even more here. See, the disciples look and what they see, and do you see in this the cares of the world? The word for cares, as we read, by the way, in the parable, was marimna. And marimna literally means anxiety or concern. They look and they're like, hey, you know what? We're trying to be careful here. We're trying to be empathetic. And look at all of these people. Well, we read 5,000 men and their families. And that could be 20,000 or so people. And they look at this is an awful lot of people. And listen, listen, listen. They're like, you know, the problem is, it's like they're, they're starving now. They've followed you. This has been a long trek to get here. And what they say is, will you send them away? They need to go away to get the need met. If you could just get away, I'm sure they could take care of themselves. Verse 16, Jesus says to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. What Jesus is saying, listen, is you are looking the wrong way to get your meat met. You're looking the wrong place to get that need met. You're looking down or over, but you're not looking up. You're scared. Things are challenging. You feel weak. Who's your strength? Who's your peace? And I can do it too. Elsewhere can only meet the need for a moment at best. But only he can meet it permanently. So he looks at them and he goes, why are you sending them away from me? Why do you think if you could just get away from here, you'll be okay? If we just get them into the villages, send them back. Well, you know, get, get them, them go back where they came from. And as long as that's the case, they're going to be good. They can go and take care of themselves. Jesus is like, well, what do you think? I told them one miracle per person. Sorry, that's all you got. He says, no, look it. Why don't, why don't you do it? You give them something to eat. You can see them going, well, we've surmised the situation and this is what we have. Five loaves, two fish. Verse 18 is everything. And I want you to walk away with this like I am today. Bring them here to me. Your cares, bring them here to me. Your fears, bring them here to me. Your Loneliness, bring it here to me. The tornado you feel like you're in, bring it here to me. 
Psalm 55.22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He'll never permit the righteous to be moved. Psalm 62.8 says, Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Think about that. 1 Peter 5.7 says, Cast your care upon Him because He cares for you. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and many of you know this, be anxious for nothing, which is weird. That tells you don't sin by stressing, and so you get so stressed about not stressing, you stress over that, and that's sinful. He says, but in everything, it isn't just stop stressing, but in everything, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, (coughs) will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Jesus is like, I'm aware of the need. And what I'd really love to do is is use you to meet it. But I'm the one who's going to meet the need. You're going to be the vehicle. God's speaking. I'm the one who's going to meet the need. You be my vehicle. And Jesus today says, bring it to me. You know what's going on in your heart right now. And you know the battles that are there. And if you're really honest, every time you stare at that thing, it makes you more bitter. It makes you more lonely. It makes you more fearful. It makes you more weak. But none of that makes you more like Jesus. And you know it. And that's not what he wants. And Jesus is bringing it here to me. And you're like, no, I don't want to bring it here to you. Now, we don't want to say that logically, but let's be honest. I want to feel more of this. I want to grieve more over this. I want to be angry more over this. Well, who do you think is telling you that? Do you really think God's telling you that? I think God's saying, yeah, go ahead and go and entertain that more. We'll get crazier in this. Go ahead and get consumed in this. Sure, because doesn't that prosper your walk with Christ? No, it doesn't. So he commanded the multitudes to sit down in the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish. This is what he did. He lifted it up to heaven. He looked up to heaven, and then he blessed it, and then he broke it, and then he brought it. He gave the loaves to his disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. And they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments. And you're probably familiar, this basket is like a if you will, as a, like a picnic basket in size. It says, those who had eaten, full of the fragments that remain, verse 21, those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. It says they ate and were filled. The word for filled is the word cortazzo, and it means to be fattened, gorged, glutted. These people who were hungry just got a buffet. But they would have listened. They would have starved had it not been for the fact that Jesus got alone first. Because in Jesus getting alone first, he was able to get the compassion he needed to pour it out on others. Please hear me as we now move towards going to prayer. God never gives you anything just enough. Have you learned that yet? He gives us an abundance. We ask for love, he gives us love in abundance. Peace, peace in abundance. Joy, joy in abundance. Do you know why? Not so you can have a cushion in the account but so that you could spend it on someone else. See, the reason God gives you an abundance is because he was hoping you would share it. I've had a rough time. I've found peace. 
That's what First Corinthians says. Second Corinthians one says about the God of all comfort, that the comfort we've received now we're able to go and offer to those who are also going through trials, not even the same trial, because the issue isn't that I need to find a specific kind of comfort, but rather that I need to find the comforter who knows how to, he's the God of all comfort. And maybe you're going through a situation very different from the situations we've gone through. That's fairly likely. I, for your sake, I hope so. But I will say this. I know where real comfort comes from. And I've gotten more than I, can, than I need. So I can spend it on you too. To lead you to the one who is the God of all comfort. In the first case, Jesus is in Nazareth, in, the, in Nazareth and they just reject him because they want to think about everything else but what he has to say. In the second case, Herod freaks out and caves in to the request of his wife and to the lust that's bred through his daughter. When he had heard the word gladly, but didn't let it really take root. But in the third case, and I really do believe the Lord is just this week, for whatever reason, this is the thing I've been praying for you as well as me. Maybe the situation's this. Something's happened and you've been blindsided. You've been hit and you've been hit hard. To be honest, in some cases, it may even be a really great blessing. You're just not seeing it like that right now. And let's face it, London's a challenging place. There's no doubt about it. And we say, well, does it make sense? What's reasonable? And if you put God out of the equation, that seems like a logical place to go. But the question is, what does God have to say? Have you gotten alone with the Lord and said, Lord, I don't even want to move until you say something. So you condition me right in this. Because I feel like I'm wrong. Where am I? I can't see things clearly. Because you know why the enemy really wants you in that state? Because there's a vast sea of need out there that God really wants to use you as a vehicle for his provision. That we'll never see if we're still caught up in our own thing. So as we go to prayer, I ask, are any of these things applicable to you today? As Christians. And if you don't know what that means, and maybe today you're still making that decision, let me say this. What Jesus would endure would be more and harder than anything you would ever and I will ever endure. He would choose to take your guilt, filth, and shame, mine too, and put it on himself and then die on a cross so it could be properly punished and then raise again on the third day to give new life. Now my question is, if Jesus did all of that and then he gave you a choice, will you say yes? Notice there's an action required to that. What are you going to do with that information? Will you say yes to him? Or you just kind of back off and agree with the information but not let it do anything? Because today, God wants to transform. And if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you that chance. But if you have, my prayer is today that God would move us to that place where we're really ready to do His will and not just agree with Him. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this precious flock you bled and died for. I want to thank you for my dear brothers and sisters, for those who have committed themselves.
to following you at whatever cost. But we confess to you there are times where clearly we hear and agree with your information, but yet really we don't really have any intention to act upon it like you would call us to. Keep that from being the case with us. And there are times we may receive it with joy, but don't really let it completely dig through the soil of our souls like it should. So it's a very shallow experience. Instead of a lifetime commitment. And what happens is when we find the hard times that come with your word, when people challenge it, we cave. But don't let that be the case anymore. When we find ourselves in these challenges in life where that isn't even necessarily because of your word, just because of living. And in those situations where we're approached and we don't even know what to do. But we find ourselves defaulting to such negative and destructive behaviors. We don't get alone and hear your voice. So we're searching for direction from so many other places. Places like our heart that you've told us is even more deceitful than the devil. <coughs> deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. God, keep us from following our heart, but rather put us in that place where we'll follow you and hear your voice. And it doesn't have to make sense. We don't have to understand to trust you. But today, overcome Forgive us for staring, for being obsessed with our problems instead of being consumed by our problem solver. Forgive us for where we've allowed these circumstances in our life to so define us that it's like when we think of ourselves, these situations come up immediately. Instead of letting you define us, where the first thing that comes up when we think, well, who am I? That the first thing that should come up would be you, that you live in us, transformed a new creation because of you. But instead, we kind of limp through life because we've allowed something to happen to us. We're, we're, we're shot in the shoulder, but we're walking with a cane. Forgive us for that, please. And set us free today to really live life the way you call us to. No longer enchained by these challenges, but rather set free to dance by the one who set us free. The one who gave us new life. Who pours forth his spirit even into and upon us even now. And here in this room and at the sound of this voice, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, that's the choice. Jesus died on the, on the cross to pay for all of your, your guilt, mine too. He rose again to become the Lord and Savior of your life, to make you new. And you can take that information and let it bounce off of you. You can take it and just do some form of surface agreement of it. Or you can let God, give God permission to completely go and ransack the hell you've invested in, in your own life. And transform you into the beautiful cathedral he wants to make you. And if that's you, I want to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident, resounding Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words now. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I recognize I'm a sinner. 
I know that that sin separates me from you. But you also so loved me that you sent Jesus to pay that price so I wouldn't have to. And I would be a fool to pay a price you've already paid. And as Jesus died on the cross, my price was paid in full. And as he rose again, just like Scripture promised, you offer me new life. And I say yes. I give you permission to completely rebuild me from the ground up. I give you permission to transform me and make me yours. Take all of these burdens. They're too heavy to carry anymore. Take all of this weight off of me. Take all of these pressures off of me. Take all of these fears off of me. Take all of these disappointments off of me. Take all of these regrets off of me. And replace them with the oil of gladness, I pray. As I hand myself to you, I say, here I am. I belong to you. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard our prayers today. You've heard where we are. I pray we would walk out of here transformed. As we sing a couple songs to conclude this, lead us now, I pray, that our praise would be genuine from our hearts. Jesus, in your name. Amen.